Thank you very much uh, to the Rappaport, to Rabbi Silbert, to Drisha. I'm, yeah, great. I'm honored to be here. Um, thank you all for coming on this very stormy night. Sometime prior to Pesach in 1857, a group of wealthy Jewish businessmen from Krakow, Poland, wanted to bring to the city a new innovation, a machine for making matzah that had been developed in France some two decades earlier and had already been in use for several years in Western, throughout the cities of Western Europe. The machine, which was powered by a wheel that a person turned, rolled and flattened the dough. And I want to show you a picture of this. Sure. Okay. Um, so this is, this is actually a picture of an early matzo machine from a New York bakery um, from around the same time. So what you can see here is that the machine was powered by a wheel that a person turned, and the machine rolled and flattened the dough, which had been previously kneaded by human hands. Um, and you can see it's actually interesting, and we're going to come back to this, that this particular machine that's pictured here uh, from the New York bakery is actually producing matzot that are round. Right, so that's a side point for now, but we will come back to it a bit later. Some later versions of this machine included large iron rods that actually kneaded the dough as well, so that human hands did not touch the dough in the kneading process either. By the mid-1850s, this machine, or the variations on it, were in use in several cities in France, as well as in Frankfurt am Main, in Mainz, in Karlsruhe, in Heidelberg, in Lisa, in Poznan, Nikolsburg, Berlin, London, Breslau, meaning throughout Western Europe. And by the late 1850s, it had, it had also arrived in Hungary. And if you can just click to the next slide, um, just to give you a general sense, right, not a very clear map, my apologies, but basically we're talking about a phenomenon that by the mid to late 1850s really had spread throughout Western Europe, the Jewish communities of Western Europe. Now, Back to the businessmen from Krakow in 1857, they were not able to put their plan into action before Pesach of that year. Uh, they just couldn't get it together. So before the following year, they decided to get a head start. And in the fall of 1857, they sent several rabbinic leaders from their community in Krakow to a nearby town in Silesia to examine a machine that was already in operation there. The Krakow rabbis went, uh, they watched a test run of this machine, they were satisfied with its performance, and they agreed to authorize its use. Except for one rabbi, by the name of Chaim Natan Dembitzer. Rabbi Dembitzer was extremely upset by the possibility that this machine would be put to use in his hometown. So in February of 1858, a few months later, he wrote to his esteemed colleague, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, of Brody in Eastern Galicia. And can we move to the next slide here? Yeah. So we're looking at two communities. This is a map of Galicia, which encompasses what is today Poland and the Ukraine. Right, we're talking about, uh, we have Krakow is right over here. And he wrote to his colleague in Brody. So we're talking about two of the biggest and most significant communities in this area, uh, important area of the Eastern European Jewish world, who are now getting involved in this uh, question about the use of this machine that the businessmen want to bring to Krakow. So he wrote to his colleague in Brody to ask for his opinion 
And at the time, Rabbi Kluger had served as a Magid, and as well as the head of the Beitin in Brody, for already 37 years. So he was a very well-esteemed, well-respected uh, senior scholar, senior leader of the community by this point. After reviewing the description of the machine that Rabbi Dembitzer sent to him, right, he did not see the machine with his own eyes, he did not, uh, did not experience it himself, but after reviewing this description, Rabbi Brody wrote back in agreement that the use of such a machine was highly problematic and indeed forbidden. Shortly thereafter, this Rabbi Dembitzer of Krakow sent two additional letters to two colleagues in Lvov who were actually brothers-in-law, Rabbi Mordechai Zev Ettinga and Rabbi Yosef Shaul Nathanson. Incidentally, right, this is in Lvov, which is also somewhere there on the map in the middle. Um, so this controversy is now uh, encompassing the area of Galicia. Um, incidentally, in that same year, a matzah machine had actually arrived in Lvov itself with the Ktav Hechsher, the letter of authorization of Rabbi, Yosef, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Ettinger, who was the Av Beit Din of Berlin. Again, you'll recall in Western Europe, this was already a well-accepted phenomenon. Now, the two brothers-in-law in Lvov, who were already rivals because they had fought out uh, for the main rabbinic post in the city a few years earlier, uh, which was ultimately given to Rabbi Nathanson, divided on this particular issue as well. Rabbi Ettinger wrote back to his colleague Rabbi Dembitzer in Krakow, similarly forbidding its use. But Rabbi Nathanson, who examined the machine that was newly arrived in Lvov and observed a trial run of that particular machine, surprised his colleague. And he wrote back to say that in his opinion, the machine and its matzot were perfectly acceptable. In fact, he and four other colleagues issued an authorization for the new machine in Lvov and declared it kasher lemhadrin. At this point, right, so we're now we're in the winter of 1858. At this point, the, one of the editors of Hamagid, which was the first Hebrew language weekly that was published in Krakow as well as in Berlin and Vienna and other cities of Western Europe, got wind of all these letters and published sections of Rabbi Kluger's prohibition alongside Rabbi Nathanson's authorization in a special pre-Pesach edition, pre-Pesach issue, this is Pesach of, of 1858. In the weeks following Pesach, these letters generated a whole slew of letters to the editor in return, and Rabbi Dembitzer of Krakow decided that now was the time to publish Rabbi Kluger's letter in full, right, Rabbi Kluger's prohibition. And so over the next several months, he managed to gather an additional 10 letters from major, major rabbinic figures in the Galicia region, including a few Hasidic Admorim. And in the fall of 1858, he published a pamphlet in Breslau that he titled Moda'a Lebet Israel, an announcement to the House of Israel. Can we see the next slide, please? Moda'a Lebet Israel, um, in which he gathered all of these prohibitions that he had solicited and presented them as a united rabbinic front against the matzah machine. Now, I should note that although he presented it as this united rabbinic front, in fact, some of the people that he wrote to ask for prohibitions weren't so negative, right? But this is, this is what he decided to publish. Now, these letters were not only rejections of the various arguments that were put forth by Rabbi Kluger and the other dissenters. I'm sorry, um, I skipped one thing. So this, this was Moda'a Beit Israel, which was published in the fall of 1858. By the following Pesach, Pesach of 1859, Rabbi Nathanson of Lvov, who you will recall was the one who issued the authorization, 
he responded in kind, and he published his own pamphlet that gathered together more than a dozen rabbinic hechsherim, letters of permission. He titled his pamphlet, Bitul Moda, an annulment of the announcement. Now, these letters that in annulment of the announcement, right? Bitul Moda, the announcement had been issued by, uh, by Rabbi Kluger, and this was the Bitul of that prohibitive announcement. Now, these letters that were collected in Bitul Moda were not only rejections of the various arguments that were put forth by Rabbi Kluger and the other dissenters, they were also very sharply worded ad hominem attacks, and the back and forth that they elicited, which pulled in many of the figures, many of the leaders of Galicia, became extremely nasty. Nonetheless, after Pesach, the storm inevitably subsided, and although the dissenters and their followers continued to oppose the use of machine matzot well into the 20th century, the matzah machine and its more sophisticated offshoots slowly spread throughout Eastern Europe. Now, I'll only mention in passing that at this point, the machine was in quite widespread use in the United States. Um, if we can look at the next slide, the Menashevitz Matzah Company uh, was founded in 1888. This is actually a picture of its original plant in Cincinnati at the top. Um, and its new plant, uh, well, its original plant in Cincinnati, its second uh, more expanded plant in Cincinnati, and its new plant in Jersey City. Uh, this was published actually in a 50th anniversary uh, uh, circular that was devoted to the, machine, the Manischewitz Machine Matzo Company. Um, so it was, this Machine Matzo Company was very soon at the forefront of technological innovations um, in machine matzo baking, as well as setting halachic standards for the production of matzot. Um, and it attracted the attention and actually the blessings of many rabbinic figures throughout the United States, Europe, and pre-state Eretz Yisrael. Um, Professor Jonathan Sarna, among others, has done some fascinating research on the history of the Menashevitz Matzah Company um, and the dynamics between the pre-World War II Orthodox community in the United States um, and the rabbinic uh, figures in Europe and in Eretz Yisrael. Um, and I highly recommend uh, some of his research for those who are interested in that. I will also only mention briefly that the machine matzah controversy flared again briefly in the land of Israel, in Eretz Israel, in the early 20th century, where it deeply divided the Hasidim, who opposed the use of the machines, from the community of the Prushim, or the Ashkenazim, who not only support, this is again pre-state uh, Eretz Yisrael, so this is the old Yishuv communities. The Ashkenazim not only supported the use of the machine matzot, but actually considered it halachically superior. If we can take a look at the next slide, um, and there's some fascinating research that's done on this uh, episode of the controversy as well. This is a poster from Yerushalayim in 1908, which invites the public to watch machine matzah as it's being prepared for Rabbi Shmuel Salant, who was one of the leaders of the Ashkenazi community in Jerusalem, right, to demonstrate that the, the gedolim of the Ashkenazi community not only prepared this matzah, but ate it themselves on Pesach as well. Um, if we can just look at the next two slides, and then we'll be done with the slide part of this presentation. Um, just uh, for interest, in terms of the development of the technology of machine matzah baking, this is a you can see this is already a slightly more sophisticated machine, um, which is from Poland. It's a pre-war picture. These are workers with this machine um, from the Yad Vashem archives. And of course, uh, today's machines, in the next slide, uh, look even more uh, fancy. Um, and 
with that, I think we can actually close the computer um, so that our technological piece is over. Now, what I want to do for the remainder of this lecture is to look closely at Rabbi Kluger, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger's letter of prohibition in that initial Moda'a Lebet Israel, and also some of the responses to that letter by Rabbi Nathanson in his Bitul HaModa'a and the other supporters, in order to get a better sense of some of the issues that were at the heart of this debate. Some contemporary scholars, you know, you can just close, just close. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, some scholars have chosen to view this controversy as a struggle of traditional jury in response to encroaching modernity. Um, this is, of course, the age in which orthodoxy was born as a response to the reform movement in Western Europe. Um, and the suggestion is that this particular controversy reflects the fact that these types of responses, that orthodoxy was not born only in Western Europe during this period, but perhaps in Eastern Europe as well. And other scholars see it as a struggle between the rabbinate of Eastern and Western Europe and the lands of Israel, um, rabbinic political dynamics that are going on there. We're going to consider these different angles as we look at Rabbi Kluger's letter. Um, And finally, at the end, uh, to consider where this all leaves us as in the weeks before Pesach, as we ourselves prepare for our our own celebration of the holiday. But we'll come to that uh, a bit later. So if you take a look at the handouts that that you have in front of you, um, we're going to pass over the first uh, first page for just a moment. On the second page, this is actually... This is the original, or a copy of the original version of the Moda'ala Beit Yisrael, specifically of Rabbi Shlomo Kluger's letter. And in the meantime, by the way, for those uh, who are interested, I'm going to hand, we're just going to pass around um, the complete Moda'ala Beit Yisrael, the complete pamphlet, as well as the Bitul Moda'a, um, so that you can take a look at uh, what some of these letters uh, look like for those who are interested in, in glimpsing at those. Um, But what you have before you is, in fact, on these two pages, um, is Rabbi Shlomo Kluger's letter. And on the next page, um, this is a translation of that text, thanks to uh, Professor David Ellenson. You can see that it's a fairly long text, and we're not going to read it word for word, but I do want to take a look at some of the major arguments, at all of the major arguments, really, that are put forth by Rabbi Shlomo Kluger. So, right, for right now, I would ask that you take a look at the English translation, the English page, which is the third page in your handout. Um, I've labeled the sections that we are going to be looking at with the letters A, B, C, etc. And for those who want to follow along in the Hebrew, the Hebrew text is labeled in the appropriate places with those same letters. Uh, so you can, you can follow along. And again, it's not the clearest, um, but, but perhaps you'll be able to do that if you wish to do so. Okay. So we're now looking at the English text together. Um, the letter begins as many responsa are wont to do uh, with many laudatory statements. A responsum of his excellence, of excellencies, paragon of the generation, the chief shepherd, the one who gives joy to all earth, etc., etc., etc. This is actually, this is, these are laudatory statements about Rabbi Brody, uh, Rabbi Kluger of Brody himself, obviously he did not write them. Um, these were written by Rabbi Denbitzer, who put together, who gathered together these letters in the pamphlet. 
So the actual letter begins, the actual letter that uh, Rabbi Kluger wrote, begins in the second paragraph with the help of God, Monday of the weekly Torah portion, and these are the statutes which you shall place before them in the year 5718, which is 1857-1858, in Brody. Now, again, this letter was solicited by his younger colleague, Rabbi Denbitzer, um, and so he writes, Great peace and blessing from the one who dwells in the heavens to his honor, my friend, the rabbi, the great light, the learned and sharp-witted, the perfect sage, the crown of Torah, our teacher, Rabbi Chaim Natan Zembitzer, may his light shine, who sits at the seat of justice in the holy community of Krakow. May the Lord found it well, and especially to my friend, etc., etc. Behold, I received your letter today, Sunday, towards evening, and although I was troubled and weary, I resolved to answer you immediately tonight. For the matter is pressing, as the days of Passover, with the help of God, are imminent. Again, this is around February of 1858. And in an enormously large city like Krakow, it is necessary to begin to ask and to investigate at least 30 days before Passover. Now, concerning your question as to whether it is permissible to bake matzot for Passover with the type of machine that has been introduced into the German states, Behold, that which was told to you, that we do so here in our community, because apparently there was a rumor that Rabbi Kluger had accepted this machine in his own community of Brody. So he says, that which was told to you, that we do so here in our community, is a total lie, completely unfounded. Indeed, it would not occur to anyone to do this for several reasons, which I will clarify below. Furthermore, one does not learn from the Germans for several reasons, right? And the Germans here, of course, are the German rabbis, right? Um, and that actually is a point that I'm going to bracket for the moment, but which we're going to return to, right? Because that, that tone, that polemical uh, jibe at the German rabbis is not coincidental. So we'll come back to it. Now, fascinating, let's pay attention to the very first reason that Rabbi Kluger provides for why he is so opposed to the use of this machine. This is A, okay? Behold, the reason for the prohibition against this appears first and foremost to be that it is not within the framework, not begeder, of the upright and the moral to plunder the poor who are anxiously awaiting the performance of this commandment. What's he talking about? For far for from the assistance they provide in the baking of matzot, they have a significant source of income, sad gadol, for the many Passover expenses which accrue to our people. Right, so what is his objection? What is his first number one objection to the use of these machine matzot? Take away the parnasa, the livelihood, from the poor people who are the ones who usually get involved in the matzah baking in these various cities of Poland. Now, I, I mean, certainly it's, it's nice that he's so socially conscious, but is this, is this a halachic objection? Is this a halachic reason? What sort of objection is this? Now, interestingly, he immediately couches this objection in halachic language, in halachic sources. So let's continue and, and see that. Thus it is stated in the first chapter of, the, of Megillah, and here he means the Babylonian Talmud, Mesechet Megillah, but at any rate, all agree that the Megillah, Megillah Tester, is not to be read on Shabbat, right? There's a prohibition to read Megillah Tester on Shabbat, Rabbi Joseph said, why is this so? It is because the poor are anxiously awaiting the reading of the Megillah. Refer to the Tosafot, the medieval rabbinic commentators upon the Talmud, who commented on this Talmudic passage, that even in a place where there is no fear that the prohibition, lest one carry it, be violated, 
it is still forbidden to read the Megillah on Shabbat for the reasons citing, uh, cited above. Right, so what is the reason that the Talmud provides for the cancellation of Megillah reading when Purim falls on Shabbat? Right, and here, because of the way our calendar is organized, Purim itself wouldn't fall on Shabbat. But for example, in Yerushalayim, Shushan Purim can fall on Shabbat, and then the Megillah is actually read on Thursday night and Friday morning, not on Shabbat. Right, so one reason that's given for the Megillah not being read on Shabbat is lest people come to violate the prohibition to carry on Shabbat and carry the Megillah with them on Shabbat rather than bringing it to the Beit Knesset beforehand. So that's one reason, like similar to why the Lulav is not taken on Shabbat when, when uh, uh, Sukkot falls on Shabbat. But that's not the only reason that the Gemara provides. The Gemara provides a secondary reason, and the argument is that that secondary reason is in fact the more significant one. The reason the, the, the reading of the Megillah is prohibited on Shabbat is because together with the reading of the Megillah, we're also commanded to give matanot le'evyonim, gifts to the poor. Right? The Megillah talks about giving matanot le'evyonim. It's meant to trigger, to remind people that that is in fact an obligation. If the Megillah were read on Shabbat, it wouldn't go hand in hand. Right? It wouldn't allow people to fulfill, to be reminded of their obligation to give matanot le'evyonim and to fulfill that mitzvah. And so therefore the Megillah itself is not read on Shabbat so that the poor don't lose out or suffer uh, in this regard. I want to go back to Rabbi Kluger's letter now. For while reading the reading of the Megillah is an obligation, the words of the oral tradition cancels it on account of the poor who anxiously await the reading of the Megillah. All the more so then, right now how is this relevant to our question of the machine matzot, all the more so then with this practice, where there is no custom to perform this commandment with a machine. Right? In Purim, we actually have to, uh, we have to cancel a standard practice of reading the Megillah on Purim Day out of concern for the poor people. Here, there's no, there's no traditional practice. There's no mitzvah to perform a matzot with an, or to, to bake matzot with a machine. Therefore, one should not do this as the poor anxiously await this task in order to earn wages for Passover. He goes on to say, in addition, several middle-class householders, and all the more so common people, do not contribute me'ot chitim, Right, there is a mitzvah to give ma'ot chitim, or gift to the poor, Erev Pesach, but people were not so scrupulous in that observance, as it is customary among the people of Israel, and the source of which is derived from the words of the early medieval rabbinic authorities. May their memory be for a blessing. Therefore, by employing the poor in the baking of matzot, they thereby fulfill somewhat the practice of ma'ot chitim, for at least they give to the poor the opportunity to earn wages for the, pur- for the purchase of Passover necessities through their help in the performance of the commandments. Yet it will not be so if they also stop the poor from assisting in the baking of matzot, as they have already neglected the commandment of charity in the practice of ma'od chitim for Passover. In other words, we can't assume that if the poor are replaced by the machine in the baking of matzot, people will find another ways or opportunities to give uh, the money to these funds to the poor, because they're already lax in their observance of ma'od chitim, so clearly this is not a high priority, unfortunately, for the people of our communities. Now, it's fascinating, I think, that Rabbi Kluger chooses to open his responsum specifically with this type of objection. We're going to see that he goes on to provide several more objections, indicating that he didn't think this was perhaps a sufficient reason to prohibit the practice. But I think that the the fact that he opens with this uh, is, is no small matter. Now, how did those who defended the use of the machine respond to this particular claim or to this particular concern? 
I want to take a look now, right, and let's not totally lose our place in Rabbi Kluger's letter, but I do want to take a look now at the response to this that was provided by Rabbi Yosef, by Rabbi Yosef Shaul Nathanson in his rejoinder to this letter. So we're going to now turn to the very first page of the handout. Um, and if you take a look at source number five, right, this is Rabbi Yosef Shaul Nathanson in his Bitul Moda'ah. Right, and again, I mentioned beforehand the sharply worded attacks. Right, you'll, we'll see evidence of that here immediately. And he made us laugh with scorn. For there, right, this is ridiculous, is basically what he says. For there, since they read the Megillah and the es- since they read the Megillah, I'm sorry, and the essence of the Megillah is to remind people to give gifts to the poor, it is not right to read it and not fulfill it. Right there on Purim, there's an actual problem that necessitates canceling the Megillah for the sake of the poor. Right, the whole point of the Megillah, he claims is to remind people, right, as a result of, you know, uh, the Purim miracle, that they are supposed to express uh, their concern and their care for their fellows through giving gifts to the poor. So it's not appropriate to read the Megillah when one is not able to subsequently give gifts to the poor. But here, meaning in the matzah context, the main purpose is to bake matzot and to fulfill the obligation of eating matzah. What does this have to do with the poor? Right, this is not related. And if a person has a large household, meaning if a person has many hands to help him bake matzot, is it forbidden to bake matzot without the help of poor people? Right? Clearly this is a secondary uh, aspect of the matzah baking and it's not a primary one. Not to mention that are in our sinful state, many disreputable poor people will come to the homes to do the labor of baking matzot. And anyone who is present at the hour of matzah baking can testify how many complications come up in the course of making matzot that are prepared by irresponsible men and servants, and all the people of our city will testify and report that. In fact, he adds, since I was appointed rabbinical leader here two years ago, I have instituted a policy that reliable people are assigned to oversee every home that bakes matzot. Literally, he says, kol bayit, I'm not sure whether he's talking about private homes or more communal locales where the matzah baking was doing, I don't know. And nonetheless, right, despite these, the fact that we have now mashkichim who are standing at each of the baking locations, nonetheless, we have found complications that much dough was stolen, that they fraudulently baked their chametz bread in between the rounds, and also when they stand all day and all night, the bakers lose their strength, right? They're not baking properly anymore, right? They're not, they're not, they're not being as careful as they need to be. And this is of greater concern, right? All of these concerns are greater than his, meaning Rabbi Kluger's concerns about the poor people losing their livelihood. But the people who work with these machines are stalwart Jews. They do their work flawlessly. And the machines bake a lot in a single day, more than other ovens, and the speed cannot be imagined. Right? So he seems to reject out of hand the significance of that argument to this matzah controversy. Now, some people have argued, and in fact, uh, Professor David Ellenson, who is the translator of the source that I brought for you, um, that what we have here are two very different approaches to the place of morals, morality, ethics, in deciding a halachic question. Um, That on the part of Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, it seems to play a very significant role. 
right? He does bring in halakhic sources, but it's basically a moral and ethical concern that he's presenting as being one of the primary reasons for coming to a conclusion about this particular new innovation. Um, whereas he wants to suggest that perhaps for Rabbi Yosef Shaul Nathanson, that was not the case, right? It was not appropriate to mix morals and ethics into halakha. Um, that's perhaps one way of reading the difference between these two approaches. Um, personally, I don't, I'm not sure that from this particular response we can uh, get a fair and honest sense of how much uh, Rabbi, Sh- Rabbi Nathanson cared for the poor in his city. He simply did not believe that it was a reason not to accept the machine matzah. Um, and as a matter of fact, as he pointed out, there was significant reason to accept on, on, on halacha, technical halakhic grounds or on the primary halakhic grounds of which he was concerned, namely the chametz status of the matzah, right, there were overwhelming halakhic reasons to prefer the machine over the poor people. Right? Again, I don't think he means to suggest that the poor people didn't deserve a livelihood and that there were not reasons the community did not need to find other ways of looking out for these members of society, but that that was not a sufficient reason in this particular context, given the circumstances. But in any case, that is an interesting take, perhaps, to think about. From here, Rabbi Nathanson, I'm sorry, Rabbi Kluger, right, the, pro- the one who issues the prohibition, goes on to bring a series of additional objections to the machine and its matzot, which I guess we could call more, pu- more purely halachic objections, um, real halacha, quote-unquote, as opposed to this type of social objection. And I want to take a look at some of those now. We're actually going to skip over the second one. Right? We're going to skip over the objection that he brings immediately after his social concerns for the poor, simply because that actually is one that I want to devote a little bit more time to. And I want quickly, I'm sorry, I want quickly to take a look at the third and fourth objections that he presents. Um, and so now I'm back in the translation of Ray Kluger's letter. I'm on page 31, uh, where I've labeled the paragraph there C. Now, these third and fourth objections that are put forth by Rabbi Kluger um, are basically concerns that the matzot coming out of these machines may, in fact, be chametz. I want to take a look at the first way in which he proposes that objection. Um, We're not going to start with the beginning of the paragraph, but rather, if you see where I drew the letter C... Um, he cites a passage from the Babylonian Talmud Pesachim um, about kneading the dough with lukewarm water, about the, the importance of having human hands constantly kneading the dough so that the dough doesn't begin to rise or doesn't begin to go through the fermentation process while it is in the process of being prepared for the baking. Um, and if you take a look where I drew that letter C, this implies that regular matzah, right, and we'll leave aside the way in which the Gemara gets there, but this implies that regular matzah does not require such careful, careful supervision since those who work the dough do so with their hands 
And the entire time that the workers do so, the matzah dough will not rise by itself. In other words, there's an understanding, or he understands the Gemara to suggest, that it's actually critical for, for human hands to be kneading, squeezing, touching the dough in order to prevent the dough from beginning to rise during that stage of the process. More, um, moreover, there is no reason to suspect that the worker will overheat the matzah dough later without actual effort, as why should he do this? Right? So, some of, the, uh, some of the supporters of the machine had actually raised the possibility um, that human error was, right, that overheating the dough was a major concern of hand-baked matzot. He says that's not a problem. However, when it required both strict and attention and supervision, we are not free to depend upon it. And if this is so, certainly one must insist upon strict attention and supervision with matzah baked by a machine. Right? So he says, actually, matzot that are being baked in these machines require more careful attention than matzot that are being baked by human hands. Why? For first, who knows if a machine breaks that the dough will not leaven? We find nothing concerning this in the legal rulings of the rabbis. Instead, only the work of a man with his hands is discussed, as this has more validity. And who is able to control nature for even if one ensures that it will not leaven during the kneading, since the machine first kneads the dough and then by necessity forms circular, so it's interesting that he's imagining a machine that forms circular matzot through a round mold, presumably the matzah could leaven during the midst of this procedure as there would be a lag between operation. Right? And he adds, right, so he's concerned about the way in which this process works with the machine. The fact that, again, the Gemara requires human hands, and the machine clearly doesn't have human hands, and so perhaps this is going to uh, elicit or, or incite the production of chametz. And he adds, aside from this, many crumbs and pieces of dough remain stuck in the machine. Thus, it is certainly forbidden to include these extra bits in a later batch by mixing them in with the rest of the dough, as these, those bits which remain even short time after the preparation leaven immediately. Since this is so, it is necessary to burn the crumbs from the machine in order to be certain that they will need to be mixed in with the dough, as well as to ensure that these extra bits will not sometime later be mixed in with other dough. Right? There's a concern that these pieces, which might get stuck to the machine, will then be baked into the next run of matzot, but since 18 minutes have already passed since the original dough was prepared, those bits and pieces which are stuck into the machine, which are now being uh, added into new matzot, are surely chametz, right? So his concern here is that the, machine, the, the, the matzah that is produced by these machines does carry with it a concern of actual chametz. Now, interestingly, in response to this particular charge, right, you'll remember Rabbi Kluber himself never actually saw the machine, right? He was basing all of this on a description that had been provided to him by someone else, but he didn't actually see the way the machine worked. Now, logically, right, this is a reasonable concern about the machine, but the response of those who permitted the machine, who actually had seen the machine and tested the machine, was that, in fact, this is not the way the machine operates. In fact, extreme caution was taken to make sure that these bits and pieces did not get stuck, the machines were washed down, they were burned off, um, and they were made out of metal uh, where these things were less likely to adhere than actually in the sort of wooden implements that people used to use when they made the matzot, people still use today, when they make matzot by hand. Um, and so that this concern of chametz is not actually a problem. Right? That being said, Right, I did mention beforehand that these machines went through several uh, periods of 
more sophisticated developments. Um, and whereas that might have been a concern with some of the original machines, ultimately, right, I mentioned the Manischewitz company went to great pains to make sure that these developments ensured that this would not be the case. But that is his concern here with actual chametz in the matzah. Um, I do not want to read together um, the way that he adds to that concern, the concern for actual chametz in section D, which is on page 32. Um, but I'll just mention briefly um, that what he cites here is a Gemara from Masechet Pesachim that one is not allowed to make matzot in molds because there's a concern that if one makes matzot in molds, right, one wants the matzot to come out a particular shape, then the shape is of utmost concern and the dough might actually be left in these molds longer than the appropriate amount of time and that chametz will be uh, developed as a result. Um, and the concern, his concern with the machine, right, the way that he understood the machine to work, the machine actually placed the matzot in these trays which were in his mind equivalent to molds and that, that that was going to be another reason for concern that the machines would actually produce chametz. Um, I'll just add here in parentheses that at a later stage, um, some of these machines used to produce a sheet, right? That the, machine, the, the, the machine that we saw was producing the round matzot, right? But there the concern was, again, that the, the, if you're producing round matzot, there are going to be leftover scraps. Right? There was a concern that those scraps were either going to go to waste or somehow make their way back into later batches of matzot. And so later machines began to produce square matzot. Um, and one of the ways in which these later machines produced square matzot was by putting out a sort of a long sheet of dough and then dividing it up into the squares that would be the matzot. Um, and a concern, a halakha concern was raised about the possibility that these matzot were not being formed whole. They were being formed into broken pieces. Um, and so that was another concern having to do with the shaping of matzot that was raised later on. Um, but that's not his particular concern right over here. Um, and again, as far as the response of those who supported the machine, right, their basic response was, you have not seen the way the machine works. Um, if you take a look at these machines, in fact, these are not of such great concern. Again, at that moment in time, some of these machines, it might have been of a concern, but as the machines became more sophisticated, it was no longer so. Now I want to go back, right? So thus far we've seen the rejection of the machine on two primary grounds, the social ground and the chametz concern. And now I want to go back to the original halachic concern that Rabbi Kluger raised, which in fact actually is probably the most serious of the concerns about machine masa that persists until this day. Um, and so now I would ask you to take a look at page 29, um, where I've labeled the paragraph at the bottom of 29b. Rabbi Kluger writes, aside from this, it seems to me that there are three reasons why it's forbidden according to law, right? We've already seen the second and the third. One is that it is certainly not, excuse me, it is certainly not permissible to fulfill one's obligation concerning the consumption of matzah and Passover through those produced by a machine. This is because the law has established for us the ruling that one is not exempt from fulfilling this commandment if a deaf mute, an idiot, or a child produces it, as not one of them are regarded as mentally competent. Right, and here I want to pause for just a moment, um, and I'd ask you again if you can somehow 
hold a finger in Rabbi Kluger um, and flip to the very first page of the handout. What is the issue that Rabbi Kluger is raising here? This particular issue that he's about to raise pertains in particular to the very first night of Pesach. Because whereas it is a prohibition to eat chametz throughout the week of Pesach, the actual obligation to eat matzah only pertains to the very first night, right? If you take a look at the very first source here on the page, Shmot uh, Perak Yudbet says pretty explicitly, Balayla, uh, sorry, Barishon Be'arba'asar Yom, Barishon meaning on the first day of Pesach, Be'arba'asar Yom Lechodesh, Ba'erev Tochlu Matzot. Right? But the specific day that is mentioned as obligating the eating of matzot is the night time of the 14th day, namely the Seder night. Um, and the Gemara Masechet Pesachim goes through a whole exercise um, as a means of determining that in fact this is when the mitzvah to eat matzah, the, the mitzvah to eat matzah pertains, that very first night. Now, the Gemara itself does not specify how the matzot need to be made, or who needs, sorry, who needs to make the matzot in order that they be considered fulfilling this requirement of matzot mitzvah. But the geonim engaged with this issue. Um, they were concerned that only a, an adult conscious being produced the matzot that would actually be able to be consumed on this night in this particular manner. And if you take a look at source number two, um, Rabbi Kluger does not cite the She'iltot explicitly, but this is essentially the source that he is referring to, as we just saw. The She'iltot are an important Geonic source written by Rabbi Achai Geon, um, or attributed to Rabbi Achai Geon. And the She'iltot say as follows, one does not fulfill one's obligation, right, in the course of discussing the laws of producing matzot, unless one eats matzah that has been guarded from leavening for the sake of becoming matzah, from the moment water is poured onto it, meaning onto the flour. And when the water is brought or poured onto the wheat flour by a non-Jew or a deaf mute or a mentally incompetent person or a minor, it is not, right, meaning it is not being supervised in that way that will allow it to become matzah mitzvah. If a non-Jew, deaf mute, mentally incompetent person or minor needs it into dough, then even if an adult Jew who is mentally conscious bakes it and guards it while it is baking, one has not fulfilled one's obligation. In other words, for this matzah that one is going to be eating in order to fulfill the mitzvah on the very first night of Pesach, the matzah needs to be produced by a person who is a bardat, a person who has mental competence, mental consciousness, who is conscious and aware throughout the process of the production of the matzah from the moment the water is poured onto the flour and throughout the kneading and preparation and baking process of the fact that this, this matzah is being prepared for the sake of the mitzvah performance. Um, and so those various categories of individuals who are not considered b'nai dat, who are not considered individuals with uh, mental competence or with sufficient consciousness, cannot supervise that process. And then from the She'il Tot, um, this is discussed by the various Mishonim, and it's ultimately codified in the Shulchan Aruch, which you have in source number three. Now, that is the source, or that is the law that Rabbi Kluger is referring to in thinking about the problem with machines. All right, so let's go back to Rabbi Kluger now. Um, I'm going back to page number 30. Right, so he has essentially cited that She'il Tot, um, or the 
it's codification in the Shulchan Aruch, right? If, even if an adult Jew stands beside one of them, I'm now like on the, I guess about sixth line, in order to supervise the baking, the matzah can still not be produced by any one of them. And if this is so, then certainly the workings of the machine are not to be preferred to the labor of a miner who possesses no mature reasoning faculty, nor from the others, even if a mature adult stands by and supervises and, and oversees their work. For it has been the intention of rabbinic authorities throughout the centuries to see to it that the matzah of commandment, meaning matzat mitzvah for this very first night of Pesach, requires careful, careful supervision by an adult Jew from the first moment the flour is needed until the process is completed by the, in the final moment of its baking, etc., etc. Um, and I want to just jump down one sentence. Moreover, the majority of our people who are unable to draw a distinction between most matzah and that of mitzvah will consume machine-baked matzah as matzat mitzvah and will not fulfill the commandment through the eating of genuine matzat mitzvah. Thus, they will recite a blessing in vain. Therefore, it is fitting to decree, inasmuch as matzat mitzvah is a decree from the Torah, that one does not fulfill one's obligation concerning the commandment of matzat mitzvah with this machine-baked matzah. Right, so his concern is that a machine right, is surely not a bardad, surely has no mental consciousness or competence. And so therefore, if a minor or if a deaf mute or if a mentally inca incapacitated person cannot prepare this matzah to be eaten on the first night, surely a machine cannot fulfill that function. Right, unless you say, okay, so let's not eat it on the first night of Pesach and eat it throughout the rest of the week when we're not actually concerned about matzah mitzvah, he says that's not going to work. Right? People will get confused and people will come to eat it on the first night. Um, in place of matzah mitzvah, they won't be fulfilling the requirements of eating matzah mitzvah and they will also be reciting a bracha levatala, right? when they say al-achilat matzah. And so that's his objection to the machines on those very halachic grounds, the concern for matzah mitzvah. Now, with regards to this, um, I actually want to take a very quick look at how Rabbi Nathanson responded to this particular charge, because this seems like a serious one, right? This seems like a pretty serious one thus far. So I want to take a look now, if you look at the second side of my computer printout page, in the second paragraph on that page two, Rabbi Nathanson writes as follows. I don't know what he's talking about. Does he think that the machine works by magic? and that they throw dough in there and it rolls itself and great quantities of dough are produced on their own? Rather, many strong men roll the wheel until it produces a large matzah. And is this worse than rolling it with a wooden rolling pin, right, which people have always done? Anyone who hears of this will laugh at his fantasies and utterances. In fact, two strong people roll the metal rolling pin and in this manner the dough is produced just as they produce it in other places by means of a wooden implement, except that here the dough is produced all at once. Right? So if you think back again to that picture of the early machine, right, or even that one from the pre-World War uh, Poland days, right, you saw that there was a wheel that human beings actually needed to roll. So what is his response to Rabbi Kluger? Why is this conscious producing of the matzah not a problem when it comes to the machine because in fact human beings still do need to operate the various parts of this matzah production right the machine is not magic the machine is not you know producing these things all on its own it requires human uh, performance it requires human input in order for it to work now that might have been the case 
in the days of Rabbi Shlomo Kluger and Rabbi Nathanson. But of course, as time went on, um, the machines became more and more sophisticated. It was not long before they were, uh, they were producing electrically uh, running machines that in fact did not require human power to roll the wheel or anything like that. So the concern does seem like it remains a serious one. And I want to take a look at one more response by one of these authors of the Bitul Moda'a, right, even though he had not yet seen the electric machine, right, but he provided a, a reasoning which actually uh, can be applied and was applied by later scholars to deal with the problem of the electric machines as well. So if you take a look now at source number four, back on the first page, um, so paragraph or source number four, which is part of the response of Rabbi Mordechai Landa in the Bitul Moda'a, he writes as follows, and he says, these scholars by whom he means, Rabbi Kluger and the other uh, dissenters who objected on those grounds, he said, these scholars confuse lishma with koach gavra, but they are two distinct issues. One is not like the other, right? So just to sort of to, to briefly um, explain, lishma means for the sake of, right? The fact that the matzot that are being produced to be eaten at the Seder as matzat mitzvah need to be very consciously produced for the sake of performing the mitzvah, right? So it requires some kind of consciousness on the part of whoever's making it, and that's why it's a problem to have a minor or, or a mentally incapacitated person produce those matzot. That's one issue. But there's another issue that they, that, they, that they confused into that mix, which is the concept of koch gavra. Koch gavra literally means human power. Right? We know that matzot mitzvah, says Roy Mordechai Landa, need to be produced with this intentionality that is lishma. But who ever said that they need to be produced with human power? Why does human intervention, human power, the only way to achieve this lishma or intentionality? Right, and so he goes on to say that, in fact, koch gavra, human, actual human physical power, is only required for nitzilat yadayim, hand washing, because of a particular pasuk, right, where it says, right, one literally needs to pour. Um, and so too for ritual slaughter, since it is written, um, and I'm sorry I didn't quote the pasuk in English there, uh, but what you slaughter you may eat. For these two things, we do not require lishma, right? We do not only require intentionality, but koch gavra, right? Actual human power needs to be involved in the performance of the mitzvah. But we have never heard of requiring koch gavra for baking matzot. Where did they learn this? Right, so he says, who says that the machine actually needs to be physically operated or that the, the baking physically needs to be carried out by a human being? As long as there's human intentionality, and of course there's human intentionality behind the use of a machine. Right, someone needs to turn on the machine, someone needed to create the machine. Um, and so this is actually, I think, the key to understanding how many later poskim dealt with the problem until today, um, the problem of electricity. Right, someone needs to turn on the electric machine and in that respect to imbue the whole process with this intentionality which can fulfill the problem of lishma. I would note, however, um, that there are some poskim who nonetheless, as a result of this particular concern for matzot mitzvah having intentionality, do propose uh, or do suggest that it is perhaps better specifically at the Seder, to use handmade matzot so that there's no concern with the lishma issue, even though right, they fully believe that the matzot that are made by machine are not chametz or are kasher. 
That is not, however, right? And I think in many homes uh, that is a practice which is adopted until today. That is, however, not the universal opinion. Um, and in fact, there are many who believe that the machine matzah, for the reasons that we just mentioned, are perfectly fine for use at the Seder as well. Okay, um, our time is running short, so I want to quickly um, take note of Rabbi Shlomo Kluger's final two objections. Now, fascinatingly enough, the second-to-last objection doesn't appear in Rabbi Kluger's letter as printed in the Moda'ah Lebet Yisrael. Right? And I want to take a look. It appears only as it is quoted by his opponents in the Bitul Moda'ah. Right? Apparently, this was a reason that the publisher of the Moda'ah Lebet Yisrael, Rabbi Dembitzer of Krakow, decided was not sufficiently serious and so he just excised it from Rabbi Kluger's letter before he actually went to press. But I want to take a look at it quickly now, again, at least as it is quoted by his opponents, to whatever extent we can take that uh, as truthful. Um, if you take a look at uh, page two, again, the first side of that computer printout page, um, this is Rabbi Shlomo Kluger quoted in Bitzul Moda'ah. He writes as follows, And every custom of Israel is Torah. Matzot have always been round and not square, we have not found square Shabbat bread either. <laughs> and now the matzot are being made square because round ones are not possible due to the leftovers, right? And that is the problem that I explained beforehand, that if you make a round matzot, you have all those uh, you know, leftover in-between pieces. That's not good. And so they started to make, most of the machines started to produce square matzot, even though we saw that there were some that produced round ones. This is to deride and ridicule and change the custom of Israel. Now, what's so holy about round matzot, other than the fact that, according to Rabbi Kluger, they've always been made that way? Well, he says, apparently our custom to make round ones came about because the bread of the non-Jews, and I think by this he means the Eucharist wafer, is made square, and we are enjoined not to follow their customs. Right? Wow. Now, so that's interesting, right? Because at least, because to my, right, to the best of my knowledge, most of the wafers are actually, most of the wafers at least now, are, are actually round. So I don't know, I'm... A wafer is matzah, yes, effectively it is matzah. Um, I think that's what he was referring to. I don't know if he was mistaken. I don't know if that was, in fact, the case, at least in his particular environs, uh, that the wafers were square, but it seems to me that that's, that's probably what he's referring to here. Um, interestingly, um, the responses to Rabbi Kluger on this particular point were either that, you know, this is just, you know, this is just too far-fetched, right? This is not, there's no holiness to the shape of the matzah. There's no holiness to the roundness of the matzah. But some actually pointed out that, in fact, if you want to talk about tradition, if you think back to the most traditional Jewish bread, the lechem hapanim in the temple, those were actually square, right? So that's another response to Rabbi Kluger on that particular ground. But I think that that comment, right, although it you know, may make us chuckle, that particular comment, which again was excised because it was, I guess, thought to be a little too far overboard uh, by the publisher, um, that particular comment I think is nonetheless reflective of the final word that Rabbi Kluger has to say about this entire episode, about this enti the, the use of this machine altogether. And that very much pertains to the question of tradition. And here I want to ask you to turn to page 32, the very final paragraph of Rebecca Kluger's letter. 
the paragraph that I've labeled E. He writes, therefore, do not veer from the custom of our fathers, of your fathers. The Germans, again, go back to what we said beforehand, they will do as their heart desires, as is their way. However, we will walk in the footsteps of our fathers, and we will not depart from them, neither to the right or the left. May their merit protect us and cause us to return quickly to the land of our fathers in our own day. Right now, again, this may be the paragraph that follows up that comment about the round, the holiness of the round matzot, but even on its own, I think that this point is a critical one. Right? Even, without, even if that's not what he's referring to over here, right? the point is that we continue to make hand-baked matzot because that's tradition. And tradition is tradition, and tradition is, in and of itself, enough of a reason to oppose these new innovations. Right? This is very much along the lines of that famous comment uh, by the Khatam Sofer, who lived only a few years prior to this, Chadash Asur Min HaTorah, right? anything which is new is, by in and of itself, right, is just for its very newness, forbidden by the Torah. Right? This obviously lifted slightly out of context. Um, but that famous quote on the part of the Khatam Sofer came to represent an attitude of many of the most traditionalist, many of the most conservative of the newly emerging Orthodox rabbis, partially, in large part, in, I would say, in response to the embrace, to the greatly enamored sense of innovation that they saw the reformers, um, the, the early reform Jews, embracing. Um, and that seems to be, and again, included in that is a particular jibe at the Germans, right? The Germans is a reference to the community of Western orthodoxy, right? Who may have considered themselves traditionalists and orthodox, but were not as negative or were not as opposed to the, the, the implementation of these new ideas of this new technology. They saw somehow a way to, to, uh, to meld the two together, um, but the older, uh, the old school rabbis, right, the traditionalists in the Orthodox camp thought that that in and of itself was already a concession. Int uh, just as a side note, I would note that fascinatingly, the son of the Khatam Sofer, who's right, the paragon of this particular approach, the Ketav Sofer, um, Avram Yoshua bin Yamin Sofer, he actually was one of the early embracers of this machine, or at least the early ones to, offer, to, to issue a permission for the machine, right, in a very uncharacteristic, I would say, fashion uh, for him as well as the line that he came from. Uh, so that's just uh, perhaps in a historical oddity. Where does all this leave us um, in thinking about our own Pesach practices um, as, we head, as we head towards the Seder night and towards Pesach in a few weeks from now? The Haggadah enjoins us. Chayav kol adam, chayav adam mirotet etzmo, ki ilu hu yatsami mitzrayim. That a person is obligated to see him or herself as though he or she themselves had left Egypt. Right in the Rambam's version, it's chayav adam leharotet etzmo. A person has to, to present themselves as though they had left Egypt. And there are many discussions as to how, what exactly this means, or how exactly this particular charge is meant to be carried out, right? How does one see oneself? How does one come to perceive oneself or to show oneself as though one has actually experienced the exodus, as though one has actually taken this experience into their own lives? One of the ways in which people attempt to do this is, in fact, by embracing tradition, right? By attempting to look backwards 
um, I don't know if we can look all the way back as far as the Exodus, but to look all the way back and to try to put ourselves in the place of our forefathers and really re-experience, relive their experiences. Um, and if we think about, I think for many of us, the Seder is very much a night of tradition in that way, a night to embrace uh, what was for the sake of what was, so that we can try to relive that um, and try to thereby find meaning in it. I think another way uh, to perhaps, that for some people, to attempt to achieve this charge of Chayav Adam Mitzrayim is different, is other, right? And that is to try to take the Pesach message forward, to think about the ways in which over the years, over the generations, over the centuries, Pesach has come to mean different things to different people in different contexts. People have had different types of Exodus experiences that in different circumstances that are somehow a replay or a reenactment of the original Pesach experience and Pesach meaning. There's no right answer. Um, I think that both the embrace of tradition and the attempt to see meaning, to see holiness in the new, um, are both valid ways of attempting to see ourselves as though we have left Egypt. Um, And perhaps that's something uh, without ruling on one side or the other, um, without without uh, espousing one particular side of this controversy or the other, to see each of them really as holding a, a bit of a kernel of meaning um, that, that, we can, that we can attempt to embrace in our own Seder and Pesach experiences more generally. Thank you very much. Sure, sure. I'm sorry. Yes, please. Yes. 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 So thank you for thank you for raising that point. That was in fact. I mean, it does not come up in Rabbi Nathanson's letter itself, but for some of the other respondents who also address that particular issue, they do point out exactly as you say that this mass production that is enabled by the of matzot that is enabled by the machine will allow, in fact, more poor people to more easily access, more cheaply access the matzot themselves. And so, in a way, the technology is providing that which Rabbi Kluger was very concerned it would take away, namely the ability of the poor to participate in Pesach. Yes? So you cite Rabbi Kluger as being a source traditionalist, but I find interesting, though, is that, you know, when one argues the case, usually in a people setting and a sort of academic as well, one puts their strongest case forward. And being a Holocaust, I just find that I know you glossed over that, I think the social issue here is very interesting that, um, you know, why did he choose? I mean, he made some very interesting halakhic arguments, you know, the distinction was in the uh, implicit distinction between Charles Chapel and every other thing. Uh, he didn't say it, but it's absolutely mm-hmm. fine. I mean, unless, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't understand why he would start with the social issue. That is, seems to be a very progressive, um, especially what was going on in the, this organ, I believe it was famine or. 
there were, you know, I don't know where he was writing, but I know in Eastern Europe at that time there were there was an issue of economic hardships, and so why did he choose that rather than start with the Hamathic and then put the social issue later? Right. So that's. I mean, I think that that's. that's Right. So again, I think that that's, I mean, that's a, that's a good question, which I don't know that we'll be able to definitively answer. One could view it in different ways. Again, as I mentioned, some scholars have wanted to see that as what you're saying, meaning as a sort of a sign that despite the fact that we, I think you said it very nicely, despite the fact that Rabbi Kruger is often painted as the traditionalist, perhaps in this regard, he was really, you know, sort of a social reformer, like you said, or, or someone who was, uh, you know, thinking about those issues when some of the other more halachists uh, were not doing so. Um, I don't know, again, as I said, I don't know that we necessarily need to read it in that particular way. I mean, the question of how you structure your arguments um, in a halakhic tshuva as in any other context um, is, you know, is a live one. I, I, sometimes people put their weaker arguments at the beginning. Um, it is perhaps, perhaps he wanted to start with that particular point because he, again, he thought it was of significant enough concern to write it in this tshuva, but that he wanted to move from there into his more squarely halachic arguments. Um, but perhaps, as you said, again, whether or not this makes him a reformer or a traditionalist, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I do assume that his concern was genuine, um, and perhaps perhaps it, it reflects the fact that he, meaning, I think the comment that you made beforehand was, was an important one, because perhaps what it reflects is that he did not see that the mass production of matzot could in fact in and of itself been have perceived as a social reform. Right? He was very concerned for the change and the immediate uh, problem that the change might elicit. Um, perhaps, you know, again, one could say, if one wanted to say that he wasn't being very forward-thinking, he wasn't looking ahead to the ways in which technological innovations actually had the potential to make life easier for a lot of people or, or to make products more accessible to a broader market. Um, so I think that, again, that it, can be, it can be argued in both ways. But thank you. Yes? Um, maybe the uh, editor took out that, ten, that second to last argument, mm-hmm. not because it was silly, but perhaps it was too inflammatory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't mean to suggest that it was silly, but I think that he, he just thought that it wasn't, uh, it's possible that he thought it was too inflammatory. Um, you, you think because of the reference to the non-Jews? What's the non-Jewish bread? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Although, again, given the tone of this this exchange, this back and forth, and so many other points, um, I don't know if the inflammatory nature of these comments was of primary concern. Right, and we only really got a taste of it. It got extremely nasty. Um, but, but you know, but I think that that's an interesting idea that, that could certainly be per- pursued further. Yes. Okay. Okay. One, one thing I would just. 
Right. right. One, one thing that I would point out. Okay, one, one thing that I would say, though, one thing that I would say in response to all of that, um, two, two comments, actually. First of all, what's interesting is that Rabbi Kluger, it is interesting that Rabbi Kluger initially did not want his tshuva published. Right? He sent it to Rabbi Demeter, and Rabbi Demeter actually had to afterwards, right, when this whole thing became so inflamed, had to convince Rabbi Kluger that it was, appro- that, that, you know, that it was worthwhile, that it was, a, that it was appropriate to publish it. So it's interesting, and I, but the truth of the matter is I don't know. I can't tell you whether he also, I mean, we saw that he played around with the tshuva a little bit. I don't, I don't know what hands Rabbi Demeter had in the structure of these particular arguments. Um, so that's also a question um, that perhaps people who have studied this, these sources a little bit better would know better than myself. Um, but one thing that I would add um, is that one of, the, one of the fascinating aspects of this whole controversy that some of the historians have pointed to is that this actually was a controversy that was not conducted purely among the halakhic authorities. It made the press very quickly. Right? I referred to the fact that before the Moda'a Le Israel and the Bitul Moda'a were ever published as pamphlets, the editor of Hamagid saw something juicy here and already published pieces of that tshuva in the newspaper. Okay, okay, but in other words, it did... That's, again, I think that that's, right, that's an important point that you're making. I think it's, I, I think that that's a good point and it is worth considering, right, but I think... Yeah, 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 no, I have... Don't be, I mean, I'm assuming this is a piece like an academic talk. Okay, I... Thank you, thank you. No, no, no. I appreciate the point, and I think that it's a good point that's definitely, that's definitely worth considering. But again, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that because of the various pieces that were involved here. Yes? Um, are the perforations an artifact mechanization process, or were they introduced before the machine? Okay, so that's the, the question is about the perforations, the holes in the matzot. Um, and in fact, the holes I didn't bring, one of the pictures that I had that I could have brought, um, are early are implements that were used prior to the machines. Oh. Um, for the perforating of matzot. Actually, similar. Anybody who's been a to a hand matzah baking? A ducker. A ducker, okay. Thank you. Um, anybody who's been to the hand matzah baking factories today has seen, you know, those sort of rollers that include the, 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 perforations. the perforations, right, that allow for the perforations. That was um, a procedure that was adopted beforehand because what it did was there's a concern, right, when you put the, when you, if you have a flat piece of dough and you put it into the oven, it's going to, it's, it's going to rise, right? Because there's hot, if there's any moisture or hot steam that's trapped inside the dough, that's immediately what's going to happen. And by the way, I mean, some, to, to this day, Yemenite Jews eat matzot that don't look like crackers. They look like pitot, right? And it seems, you know, that, that the early matzot probably did look like that. But already by the days of the Ramah, he talks about them as being crackers. Um, and the way to achieve that is by, is by putting the holes in. Um, so that was something that the machines adopted, but that did exist beforehand. Yes, yes. And so that's, an ex- that's also an excellent point, right? That was, right, that's an implement. And, and I, wanna, I, I, wanted to, I wanna add to what I said beforehand, um, that some of, again, we, we only got a little taste of this back and forth, but what some of the Mishivim responded um, was that in fact, the earliest matzah machine uh, could perhaps already be traced back to the days of Rabbi Menachem Meiri, right, Provence, um, one of the Rishonim, who talks about what he calls in Amla, Right, obviously from the word amel, right, to, to perform labor, it sounds like what he's talking about is some sort of stick that was used to mix the dough. 
Now, we think of a stick, it doesn't sound like a machine, but in fact, it was a sort of simple machine um, that was used already, right? In other words, it wasn't all done by hand already in the medieval period. Um, so yes, meaning I, I, I take the point, uh, I think the point is a good one, um, that when we're talking about the introduction of machines, right, we should specify that we're not, that simple, simple implements or simple machines were already in use for a long time. And, but I think that that, by the way, is more or less in line with the response of Rabbi Nathanson, who says, you know, this isn't so innovative, right? This isn't so crazy, right? We're talking about people turning a wheel, or we're talking about people using a metal pole instead of a wooden pole. What's the big difference? So thank you. Um, yes, please. Right, so I, mean, I think that that's very interesting in terms of, you know, again, obviously this whole episode fits into, um, you know, one could look at it in the context of a broader question about the way that people responded to the, introdu- to the introdu- industrial revolution, right? The, the, the introduction of machines on a much broader scale, um, not only to Jewish life, but to, to modern life in general. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know if, I mean, it would be interesting to go back and look at some of those responses with that question in mind. I don't know if we see very clear expression of that fear um, as exactly as you phrased it, but I do think that certainly some people want to see this entire episode as part of that broader narrative of how did, you know, how did people receive and respond to machines, in which case that would definitely be something um, that might have come up. Yes? But part of the Yes, and so I think, yes. Yeah, and you see that um, you know, once you have things done by machine, you know, the people labor. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, it's certainly in a much, this is not the only, by, by no means, of course, right, the only context in which the introduction of machines elicited fears as to what would happen to, to the people, right? Um, how would people be affected by these machines in the different ways? Um, so certainly this, this um, in that respect, I think that this entire episode can be looked at as, you know, um, in light or against the backdrop of that of that broader historical question. Yes. Thank you.